0: Nike McNeil, and I'm a very overeducated loudmouth tour. Uh, <laughs> seriously, I've been, uh, I used to be a librarian, and then um, after my first divorce, that just didn't cut the mustard money-wise, uh, and so I became a stripper for a couple of years, and then uh, an escort, and I've been an escort since January 2nd of 2000. Uh, I had a little period in there of, of retirement while I was married again. Uh, but that's really kind of just like having one client. Uh, and about seven years ago I started writing quite a lot on the subject and I have a really popular blog right now. And So uh, that's pretty much who I am as far as just the basics.
1: So how does a sex work uh, intertwine with your politics?
0: My sex work, in, that's a good question. Um, my sex work in your ties with my politics in that I think uh, Margot St. James, who was like the, the first well-known sex worker rights advocate, said um, it's the easiest thing in the world to politicize a whore. Uh, and I think it's true because when, when you have a government that's trying to politicize your very existence, uh, that's trying to make um, your work and what you do to survive on a day-by-day basis, into a political issue, it's hard not to be political, right? I mean, I'm told that, uh, that my means of, of paying the rent and, and, and paying my, my doctor bills and, 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 you know, getting food is somehow a political thing that affects millions of other people. And, and given that, it's almost impossible that I, my work wouldn't intertwine with my politics, you know?
1: Why why should uh, the war on whores be abolished, and how does
0: that relate to the war on drugs? Uh, the war on whores and the war on drugs. Well, first of all, I mean, in the, in the most simple way, they're both wars on consensual behavior, right? They're both um, attempts by the police state to suppress behavior that consenting adults have decided to engage in. Um, in the case of drugs, that they want to put something in their bodies, you know, and that it's their business. And in the case of sex work, uh, we have two or more adults who have made an agreement to, um, to have sex for whatever reason. And uh, I think, and this is kind of slightly off the subject, but I think it's, um, it's really interesting in that prostitution laws are the only laws we have that I can think of um, where a behavior that is completely legal when done for free is illegal when done for pay. The only other exception uh, I've seen people mention is blackmail, but blackmail is a harmful thing. Blackmail is you're trying to hurt the person. In, in sex work, it's be something that two people can be both completely happy with, and and yet it's it's, complete, it's illegal. So what you've basically got there is you've got... Um, you're, you're criminalizing a thought. You're criminalizing a motive. If I have sex with somebody for any other reason in the world, it's legal. But if I do it for pay, it's illegal so it's that motive and so I think in a way the war on horrors is worse than the war on drugs uh, and I'm not just saying that because I'm more affected by the war on horrors. I'm saying because um, in my talk I gave three reasons three main reasons um, of why why it's replacing it um, the first reason being I think people are getting sick of the war on drugs and so therefore the, the police state needed a new rationale you know a new reason to exist um, the second is that um, I think they realized that the war on whores was uh, was easier in a way, uh, partly because A, the stigmas against a sex work are extremely old. I mean, they go back to, you know, beginning of civilization, right? Um, and two, that with the war on drugs, if you're going to frame somebody, you at least need a throwdown. Right, you at least need to carry a little baggie of crack in your pocket if you're a cop to say you pretend you found on them, um, and if you really want to frame them for something big, you're going to need to to come up with a truckload of coke or whatever, you know, to say that that you did this. The war on horrors, you don't even need to do that. A cop can literally just point his finger at somebody and say, "Oh, I saw her do this," um, and she can be arrested for that. There, there are women. Uh, that there are plenty of cases, and I, I track these on my blog quite often uh, under the title uh, "Lack of Evidence," and it'll be th- crazy things. It'll be um, women get arrested for wearing boots, women get arrested for, for walking in a certain place, uh, for talking to a known prostitute, uh, for talking to somebody through the window of a car, um, for you know. There are cases where, um, in in reverse, where they have a policewoman you know, pretending to be a streetwalker and they will literally arrest any man who drives down that street by himself. And they'll just pull him over and arrest him because he was in a known prostitution area. So, you know, even um, whereas the war on drugs warped the principles of evidence, the war on whores is basically throwing them out the window. It's, it's completely just discarding uh, the, the whole evidentiary principles. And the third thing Uh, I think, and and this is in some ways the most important, is that I think the War on Whores is is a a backlash against the advances in sexual autonomy. Uh, I don't think it's it's, um, coincidental that it started ramping up, um, the real hysteria started ramping up in 2004, which is the year after New Zealand decriminalized prostitution. It's the year after uh, Lawrence versus Texas, it's a few years after um, several European countries loosened their laws on prostitution. So you see what I'm saying, it's, it's, I think that the, the, the anti-sex people were seeing a movement, they were seeing a lot of, of move toward sexual autonomy, you know, toward, uh, against, away from repression of sex workers, repression of gay people, uh, repression of trans people, and, and they had a backlash against it. And I kind of think, in a way, and, and this is something I didn't mention in my talk earlier because it, it didn't occur at the moment, but it's, it's true, I think all these anti-trans laws we're seeing, the bathroom bills and all that, are really very closely related. I think, that it's, again, it's, it's trying to, um, to push back against um, the liberalization of, of, you know, of sexual minorities.
1: How can a sex worker, a, a woman sex worker, protect herself without relying on the police?
0: Uh, we have been doing it forever, right? Um, the main thing that, uh, as a woman sex worker, that you want to do is not get into a situation that's dangerous in the first place, uh, right? it's the easiest way to protect yourself. And the way we do that is we try to to vet clients before we see them, right? Because once a man is in a room with you alone, nine times out of ten, unless you're an exceptionally strong or, or, or well-trained woman, and an, or he's an exceptionally weak man, you know, he, he's going to have an advantage over you, right? And so we do, um, one thing we do is we call references. Uh, so like, for example, if, um, if a guy has seen um, another sex worker uh, that uh, and, and he tries to see me. I'll say, Well, who, who are your references? And he'll give me some names. And um, I might see a name I know on there, even. I might see a girl, I've talked to her before. And I'll call her up and say, Hey, have you seen this guy? And, and she's like, Oh, yeah, he's fine, you know, that kind of thing. Um, sometimes, if, um, if the client really knows the girl well, and like she knows me well, for example, he might even ask her, Hey, can you call Maggie for me and, and, and you know, give us an introduction? And so we do that, you know, but so that's one of the ways is, uh, um, is uh, by references. Uh, there's also various screening procedures. Um, I had a guy one time uh, a few months ago who, uh, he came basically out of the blue, you know, he didn't have any local references, he had references, you know, in his, in his own state. But he, you know, he wanted to see me fairly soon and so he said, look, my name is such and such. He spelled it out. He gave me his phone number. He was the dean of a university. He gave me his professional website. I, you know, he had an unusual name. I went to the website for that university. There he was, same picture, same guy. I'm like, okay, this is safe, right? Because the dean of a university is not going to be trying to mess with a hooker in Seattle. It's just not going to happen. Um, so I think that's you know, the most important thing. Like I said, is just making sure you're pretty sure of who the guy is and what you think, what skin he's got in the game, right? Um, generally the wealthier and more established a man is, the less likely he's going to try anything crazy with you. That's not a hundred percent, right? Because we all hear about stories, but you've got to do the best you can. Sure.
1: Illegal is unethical. What, what, why, do you think, why do you think that sex work is so taboo?
0: Uh, I think, there's, I think there's, there's sex in general. Uh, it has a long history, you know, of taboo about it. I think the reason sex work itself became taboo, uh, because if you look historically, um, and this is one of the things I talked about in my talk, historically, the line between good woman and bad woman was not drawn at the accepting of money. It was drawn at having sex out of wedlock. And so, you know, for example, in the King James Bible, when you see the word harlot used, it doesn't always mean a prostitute. It sometimes means an adulteress. It sometimes means... um, just a, a, a promiscuous woman, you know, because they didn't care. To so the ancients and, and even up to through the Middle Ages, it didn't really matter to people um, whether the woman's motive was money or whether it was something, the important thing was, she's having sex outside of the blessing of the church or, or whatever religion was in that region, because it's pretty much the whole world was like that, right? Um, and so it wasn't until the 19th century that we start seeing this line, the line moved from um, sex out of marriage to sex for profit. Uh, and it's it's basically in the early years of the industrial revolution. And I don't know why that shift occurred then, but my pet theory is that because society was changing, uh, because so many women now were coming from um, after the enclosures of the farms and everything, we were coming into the cities to work. Um, you know, and that was in England and the United States, of course. Um, mo- it mostly started happening after the Civil War, right? After industrialization starts really kicking into place, and you have these women that are displaced and are coming into the cities. Um, their lifestyle change, and I kind of think it was in the best interests of the social establishment to not discourage women from coming in and working in the factories. And so basically they had to move that line so that even the women working in factories had somebody they could look down on, right? They had to have a new lowest of the low. Uh, and obviously that kind of dovetails too with if women are, um, if women are working for themselves, because most sex workers do it always have. Um, and in the 19th century, on average, about five and a half percent of the adult female population of any given large city were sex workers. That's a big old number, it's way higher than today. Uh, today it's about one third of one percent. So we're talking about what difference of 16, 17 times, you know, um, as many as many women used to, to work. And I think that to a degree, it was in the best interests of the, um, the factory owners and the big business uh, interests and all, to try to discourage women from jobs that they could do on their own to kind of get them to come into the factories. So I kind of, I mean, that's maybe a little conspiracy theory sounding, but I I kind of, you know, until I have a better answer, that's that's my answer.
1: What what do you think about the women who are in um, basically an unfortunate socio-economic situation where they see sex work as not a desirable thing, but the only thing that they can do to survive?
0: Um, well, I, I, I'm going to answer that question with a question. Um, if the only thing that they found they could do to survive was to be a maid and clean toilets, you know, would that be worse? Even though it makes less money? In other words, if you've got a limited slate of options, let's say you're in a situation where you only have three options, right? Uh, whatever they might be, you know, uh, maid, begging, and thief. You know, um, how does it help you to take one of those away, right? And if sex work is one of those options, and you consider it the best of the options, right? If if your options are, you know, uh, sex worker, um, uh, nanny, or factory worker, and you think that the that sex work is the best of those three, how in the world does it help you to take that away and now constrain your choices only down to two? Um, So even though, obviously, I don't like that some women are forced into sex work, um, I don't like it on two levels. I don't like it, number one, on a philosophical level, and number two, I don't like it on a practical, selfish level because the women who get into sex work and don't like it when they get out tend to be some of our worst foes. Because they are getting that thing of, it's kind of like the, um, the guy who was an alcoholic and it destroyed his life, and after he gets out, he's pushing temperance on everybody. You know what I'm saying? It's the same kind of thing, right? Uh, it was bad for me, so therefore, I'm gonna to try to make it bad for everybody. Um, and so, you know, for both of those reasons, I think it's, it's pretty awful. But the fact of the matter is, right, we live in a physical world. And you gotta work, you gotta make money. And um, I, like I said, I don't see how constraining options um, is is ever a valuable thing. Um, if, if you want to, I mean, if you want to save, uh, this is one of the things we say to the to the, the, the prohibitionists a lot, right? The prohibitionists want to dump all this money into uh, police stings and you know, overtime for cops to do these things, and imprisoning people. I mean, you know how much it costs to imprison people? It costs, more to, it costs more to imprison somebody for a year than it costs to send them to Harvard. So for all that money, you could use that money, and, and you could actually build shelters, you could have job training programs, you could do all sorts of positive things, uh, but instead we prefer to throw people in prison. Uh,
1: what do you think? This animosity comes from, I like to call them Hollywood feminists but the, the, some, some women and, and people like to speak for, for sex workers.
0: Uh, Gloria Steinem, Lena Dunham, <coughs> and there's a, yeah, there's a bunch of them. Uh, uh, right now, it's the cause celeb. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when it was not. Uh, I remember when Dolly Parton was in, um, in the best little whorehouse in Texas. And she was making the rounds of the talk shows, talking about how she thought it should be decriminalized. Um, you know, it was not, and, and most Hollywood actresses in those days had no specific opinion one way or the other. If they were asked, they, you know, some of them even said, oh yeah, I think it should be decriminalized. Uh, I believe Jane Fonda at one point made a statement that she thought it should be. Uh, well, of course, she played a prostitute, Duclute, Um But I, I don't remember whether she did or not, but it seems to me that she did at some point. Um, but anyway, I think it became um, a thing when it became the, the big cause celeb. Uh, and there actually are these people, uh, and I found this out when I was investigating uh, Demi Moore and, and Ashton Kutcher, there actually are these people called celebrity charity consultants. And their job is they're hired by celebrities to advise them on what popular causes they should give money to so as to seem socially responsible. And there are there are at least one, a couple, you know, a, a married couple of uh, celebrity charity consultants in Hollywood who are pushing the sex trafficking hysteria. Uh, and they were the ones that sold Kutcher and, and more on it. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to find out that Mina Sorvino and Gillian Anderson and uh, what's her name, um, um, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith Um, and a bunch of these other celebrity prohibitionists also didn't consult with the same, uh, these same consultants or other people like them who said, hey, this is the cause celeb right now, this is what you should give your money to, this is what you should talk about, and in a few years when it is not that anymore, you will see all those feminists drop off and disappear and go give their money to another cause, whatever that other cause is.
1: Some feminists and and women and friends of mine who sometimes criticize sex work, do it um, to the extent that it isn't voluntary. So obviously women and children who are sold into sex trafficking and stuff like that. Like, well, what's your approach towards that? What do you think the percentage is? Um,
0: um, I, can, I can give you actually a pretty close percentage. Uh, we've There have been a bunch of studies done on it because it is such a hot button issue now. Um, I'm going to have to answer that in two parts. Uh, one, one of the parts is you're going to have to, if you want to start talking about coercion, you need to define coercion, right? Uh, I wrote a column, once called Thought Experiment, and here's the thought experiment. The thought experiment is imagine a woman who uh, works as a barber in a barber shop, which is a perfectly ordinary barber shop, caters to men, right? The only thing unusual about it is that all the barbers are female. That's their gimmick, right? So let's say a guy goes to this barber shop and he has a barber there. He knows nothing about her. He likes her because she's pretty and she's nice and he talks to her and she cuts his hair. But what does he know about her? He knows nothing except what she chooses to tell him. Does he have the right to pry into her business? Does he have the right to to dig in there? What if he finds out by a rumor, you know, let's say his, his, his sister tells him Oh, she's got a really abusive boyfriend that takes all her money. Does it help her if he stops going to that barbershop? Does that help her? What if she is in dire financial straits because she got a philosophy degree and she got a hundred thousand dollars in debt and her parents co-sign the loan and so she has this pimp called the government that is telling her that if she does not pay back her debt that it will inflict violence in the form of repossessing her parent's house, which they can do, by the way. Okay, So she's debt-bonded, She's her family's being threatened, which are all things we are told sex traffickers supposedly do, and she has to go out and work. How is that different from sex work? Is that different? Should we make a law saying she can't be a barber anymore, she can't pay that debt we, we attribute all these strange extra things um, to, to uh, the same situation when sex work is involved, right? In the West, the rate of coercion, and I say coercion, in this case I mean valid coercion. I mean coercion that anybody would agree was coercion. I don't mean this kind of shit like you hear from feminists sometimes of like, Oh, her choices are constrained. Yeah, well, my choices are constrained, too. You know, I have some friends that, that um, have cyclic depression issues, right, and that have found sex work is very good for them because um, they can cancel. If they, if they get up in the morning and they're too depressed to work, right, if they were working in a regular job, what happens if you call the boss three or four times and do that, right? You're going to lose your job. But if it's just canceling clients, <laughs> right, you can do that. You can do that for years and, get, and, and make that work. And so her choices are constrained, but she's found that this works for her, right? But let's just say for a minute, let's talk about real, honest-to-goodness coercion, right? Guys beating you, threatening you, that sort of stuff. In the West, it looks like it's about a 2% rate of coercion. Um, And that's really interesting. I think that's a really interesting number. Because it's roughly the same fraction of women who report having an abusive or controlling boyfriend or husband. So I think that they're not separate phenomena. I think that a certain fraction of the female population is going to find herself, whether due to personality flaws, whether due to bad luck, whether due to whatever, you know, I'm not going to analyze that, but for whatever reason, finds herself dominated by an abusive controlling man. The difference is if she's a school teacher or a cashier, or a bank teller, we don't have a special name for that boyfriend, we just call him an abusive fuck. But if she's a sex worker, we call him a pimp, and we pretend it's a different thing. Um, Among migrant sex workers, the number is a little higher. Uh, It seems like it's about 5% or so. Um, In in Britain and in the United States, it seems like it's closer to 5%, because of course, migrants, right, have an extra thing that makes them marginalized. They're easier to exploit. Uh, They're in a country possibly illegally, they don't have the right documents, so they're more vulnerable, and so they're easier to take advantage of. Um, And among underage sex workers, it seems like the number is, what, 10%. Uh, About 10% of them, you know, fall into situations that are bad enough and have somebody abusing them and, and controlling them. But any of these numbers, even the highest, 10%, are so much lower than what the myth tells us, right? Because when you hear politicians talk, politicians, I've even heard politicians literally reverse it. I've heard politicians say, 98% are forced and 2% are, and and of course this is nonsensical. I have um, been a sex worker for 17 years. I have literally never met one single sex worker, and I've met a lot of them who was what I would call coerced in that way, right? In that really extreme way. I've known some who were in bad conditions. I've known some who were like, this is the only way I can feed my kids. Um, I've known some who had some illnesses. I've known, you know, all sorts of different things. Uh, I've known some with boyfriends I didn't like too much, right? But I have met, met hundreds of sex workers. I've talked to thousands of sex workers and Every sex worker I know who tells me that she was coerced, it's always in the past. And it's not a very large number of them. And a striking number of those, even when they're coerced, you know, at, at a certain point, they often use sex work to get out of the coercive situation. So, in other words, they have a husband or boyfriend who pushes him into it because uh, in, in one case, I know, uh, he lost his job, and they had two kids, and she and he knew she had been a teenage sex worker, and so basically he's like, "Hey, you need to go back to work to support the family until I can get a job again." you know so he pushed her into it, and then he didn't work too hard at finding himself a new job, right but she Put, started putting money aside because she began to realize, oh, this guy's you know, gonna do this to me, right? And the sex work was what allowed her to get out of that abusive situation, even though she was pushed into it. So it's kind of interesting, in that, you know, in that it, I, I know more than one sex worker who has done it both ways, who has done it coerced and who is still doing it now, not coerced. Do you think
1: the, the percentage of um porn is like that too? Do you
0: know anything about that? I don't. I've never done very much porn. The only porn I've ever done was like just a few clips and it was a long time ago. Uh, I've never been in the porn industry per se. Uh, I know some people who are. Uh, I would suspect it's probably, it might even be lower in the porn industry because in the porn industry you've got more eyes on you, right? Uh, I think it, it's probably harder, but that 2% Seems to me like a bottom line, because once again, right? If it's similar to the percent of women who are um, were abused, you know, in general, why should it be any lower or higher in porn, right? If that's the rate at which secretaries and teachers and you know nurses and whatever are abused, it's probably the same for porn students for porn actresses too. Can you tell me what the difference is
1: between decriminalization and Legalization?
0: Yeah. Um, Legalization, decriminalization, it's a little confusing for people outside the sex worker rights movement because they're used exactly the opposite of the way they're used in marijuana legalization. Um, In when you're talking about drugs, um, decriminalization is kind of seen as the lesser thing. Decriminalization in in drug usage is usually used to mean something like um, the cops can't put you in jail if they catch you with it but they steal it from you and they give you a ticket. And you may have to go to rehab or or something or pay a fine. Um, And that's what usually decriminalization means with drugs and legalization is more like what we have in Washington now, right? Where you can actually go in a store and buy it. In sex work, it's the opposite. Um, Because as a friend of mine says, people are not substances, right? So it is different. Um, Decriminalization in sex work means removing sex work from the criminal law. In other words, not considering it a subject for the police in the first place. Um, and, and people sometimes think that that, that means um, you'll get some very statist people you know, who think that the government needs to regulate everything uh, and they, they, have a, they have a cow when you tell them this and they think, oh my goodness, you know, oh, it'd you, you, be like a free-for-all and you won't have any. I'm like, no, because what it means is Sex businesses will be governed by the same kinds of rules and laws and civil codes as other businesses are governed by. Um, If you have a restaurant inspector go into a restaurant and he finds a health code violation, he doesn't call the cops and arrest the cook and the waiters and every customer and close the place down and steal the, 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 uh, the restaurant's bank accounts. No, he gives them a citation and says, I'll be back on Friday and you better have this cleaned up and if you don't, you're going to be fine, right? And that's the kind of rules and laws that sex work businesses would be under, under decriminalization. In other words, basically it would be treated as as not a criminal matter. Under legalization, um, sex work is still conceived of as a crime for which the law makes allowances. And those allowances are different in every country. And the arbitrariness of it can be demonstrated by the fact that in Nevada, the only legal way to work, to do sex work, is in a brothel. In Canada, just a few hundred miles to the north, right, a a country very similar culturally to the United States, in Canada, up until a couple of years ago, and then then things started to change, but uh, up until a couple of years ago, brothels were illegal. In other words, it was legal to work as a sex worker if you went to see somebody. It was not legal to have a brothel. So it was a completely arbitrary distinction, right? In one place, brothels are viewed as, oh, the only good way. And the other way, brothels are viewed as the only bad way. Um, And so you you often see this kind of thing in legalization. There'll be these crazy arbitrary rules that are made. um, And those rules are, so sex work itself might not be illegal. Uh, but doing it certain ways could be illegal. Or, as in Nevada, you have to have a background check and a license, and you have to work for a licensed pimp, and you have to be you know, only in certain counties, and you have to be way outside of town, and you have to get mandatory disease checks, and blah, 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 right? Um, in the Netherlands a couple of years ago, because they're fighting the sex trafficking hysteria also, right, um, they passed a couple of laws that were completely bizarre. It was things that made sense to politicians, of course, but not to anybody else. They raised the age to work legally from 18 to 21. They, um, the government bought up a bunch of the brothels in the red light district and closed them, thereby making it harder to get a position. And then they made it a law that you had to speak Dutch to work legally. And then of course, a year later, the Dutch government was crying that the number of illegal sex workers had gone up. It's like, well, yeah, because you took all these women who were working, who were between 18 and 21, and now you suddenly define them as criminals. Or these women that were working and couldn't speak Dutch, and now magically they're criminals, you know? And that's the kind of crap you get under legalization. Um, In Queensland, in Australia, it's illegal to work with another girl. You can work in a brothel, and you can work independently. But, if you work with another girl, so like, uh, a, one, a very common male fantasy that we cater to is, uh, we call it a duo. In other words, a guy wants two girls at the same time, right? This is a very common male fantasy. So my friend, you know, let's call her Jane, will call me up and say, hey Maggie, uh, one of my clients wants a duo, will you do a duo with me, right? And so we're both doing the thing, whatever. But if we got busted, if we were in Queensland, and we got busted. We could both be arrested and charged with pimping each other, even though it's legal to be a sex worker. So this is the kind of crap you get under legalization, that's why we don't want it, because it's, it still allows the police to mess with you, it still allows the state to play games with you, it still creates a two-tiered system wherein you have legal and illegal sex workers. Yeah, its decriminalization is, is the way that is supported by every sex worker rights group. It's supported by every human rights group that's that's made an opinion on it all, um, including Amnesty International. It's supported by dozens of health authorities, uh, Doctors Without Borders groups like that. It's supported by several UN agencies, by every academic who studied the issue. Uh, it, it's it's just a, a huge consensus. Um, the only people. Honestly, whoever seem in favor of legalization are people who stand to profit from it. So like Nevada brothel owners, you know, they're in favor of legalization and um, some, some politicians will be in favor of it, you know, that sort of thing. Sure. But, but not anybody who actually cares about sex workers.
1: How do we achieve decriminalization for sex work then? Is it, is it through appealing to politicians or, or is it sort of a thing that we have to change in culture?
0: Uh, my, I'm, others do not necessarily agree with me on this, but I feel as though I look at history in the United States, and uh, being pur- so puritanical here, I notice a long, long list of sexual issues that people might have argued about till they were blue in the face. And nothing happened until the Supreme Court decided on it. So you had Virginia versus Loving. Right, which legalized same, uh, uh, interracial marriage. You had Eisenstadt versus Baird, which said it was legal to sell contraceptives to married couples. You had Lawrence versus Texas. You had Roe versus Wade. You had the recent case, which for some reason I can never remember the name, that legalized uh, same-sex marriage. And these all were Supreme Court cases. And so I think it's gonna be the same with sex work. I think it's gonna work its way through the courts. And. Um, it's going to get to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court is going to decriminalize it. Unfortunately, I think when that does happen, it's going to be more like Roe versus Wade than it was like Lawrence versus Texas. Um, I think what's going to happen is every state, I mean some states might accept it, but a lot of states are going to scramble to do the same crazy shit they're doing with abortion. Like, okay, we can't ban abortion, but we're going to make almost impossible for an abortion clinic to open, you know, um, we're gonna make a waiting period, we're gonna make a, you know what I'm saying? And so I think that's what's gonna happen. They're gonna, uh, okay, well we can't um, make sex work, you know, illegal, but we can make brothels illegal. You know, we can make advertising illegal, we can make, you know, and they're gonna try all these kind of crazy games, I think. and uh, I I think it's gonna be going on for quite a while, honestly, but but the decriminalization itself I foresee is a, a Supreme Court. And I think we're heading in that direction. Honestly, I, I would put it not more than a decade or so in the future. I think it'll come faster than people think it will. Yeah.
1: You think that's because, though, that the culture surrounding that taboo is, is is being eliminated through education, or do you think it's because it's just becoming too difficult for the law to try to pursue um, pursue people who do? It's it.
0: always been the. It's whack a mole. There, there's no, it's impossible to stop sex work. It, it can't be done. If you can't stop people from using drugs inside of a prison, how can you stop people from having sex for the wrong reason? You can't, it's impossible. You can harass people, you can punish people, you can throw people into the prison industrial complex, you can make their lives miserable, but you can't stop it. So there's never, and, and the politicians know that. They know, I mean, they're not, they, we may think I mean, politicians would be sociopaths, but most of them are not stupid. You know, they can read. Um, uh, they know this is not gonna, gonna have any effect, but they know that it's popular, right? Um, and so I think what's gonna, um, the reason this is gonna happen, that things are changing, we are educating people. I think social media had a lot to do that honestly because people can follow me on Twitter, right? People can follow lots of sex workers on Twitter. They can follow lots of sex workers on their blogs. And so the the prohibitionists can claim all they want that there are these vast multitudes of uh, of sex workers who are doing it, you know, against their will. But when every single sex worker on Twitter and every single sex worker has a blog, You know the the prohibitionists like to pretend we're we're so privileged, but it's like there are thousands of us. There are thousands of every sex worker rights organization in every country in the world are calling for decrim. Where are all these so-called you know sex slaves that that don't want it? You know, there's a very tiny handful of them all working for prohibitionist organizations. What does that tell you? You Um, So I think. I think it's following the track that gay rights followed in the sense that back in the '70s, you know, when I was young, um, people in most parts of the country saw gay people as a punchline, right? Uh, gay people were those, were those weirdos who lived in, in San Francisco and New Orleans and Greenwich Village in New York. And that's where they lived, right? And we don't have any in Chicago. We don't have any in Omaha or Houston or Miami or whatever. You know, it's just those weirdos that live over there. Well, once gay people started being out, right, and they started realizing, oh shit, my aunt's a lesbian, you know, my teacher's gay, you know, my, my, my neighbor. You know, my, 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 my son, my daughter, you know, once this started happening, um, people began to realize it wasn't just some weirdos and some, you know, that it was a lot of people, and it was a lot of people they liked, a lot of people they cared about, a lot of people they loved. Uh, and, and you know what? When you get to know somebody, you, you don't want to hurt them, right? You don't want them to be mistreated. It's easy to mistreat the other. It's not so easy to mistreat your cousin. And so I think right now, um, and for a while now, right, people, sex workers tend to be very discreet. We tend to not be out and let people know what we're doing. But more and more of us are coming out. And people begin to realize, oh, yeah, I know that chick. You know, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Right? And as people come out, as we come out more and more, people begin to realize, no, we're just normal. You know, we're just people. Um, they will want less and less. You know, to do that. And um, my very first big activist event uh, was almost four years ago. I did a um, panel discussion at the Albany Law School, Uh, and Albany Law School is a government law school. And so I jumped at the chance because I'm like, these people are going to be future legislators, they're going to be future judges, they're going to be you know what I'm saying. And I had um, this panel discussion was very well attended, and I remember talking after to a big old group of law students all listening and asking sensible questions and absorbing what I'm saying, and I'm thinking to myself, in 20 years or 30 years, right, one of these people is going to be a judge, and this is going to come up in a case in front of them, and they're going to remember Maggie McNeil, and they're going to remember, you know, I I really need to think about this. I'm not just going to be able to just knee-jerk this. I need to think about this. This This is, you know, a real thing. And I think as the culture changes, as the young people who are in law school, or today, and that are going to be the legislators and judges of tomorrow. Uh, they're going to get there, and they're going to be not so much like their parents and grandparents, and and willing to uh, to condemn sex workers because they're going to have known sex workers, they're going to have followed them on Twitter and seen them speak and uh, seen them on YouTube and things like that. Yeah.
1: If there is if there is one thing that you want the world to know about sex workers, what would it be?
0: that we are not any different from anybody else. And I mean that not in the sense that we're homogeneous, because we're not. What I mean is that we don't, the variation between sex workers is no different from the variation between any other people. If you, if you take any characteristic, you know, pick one, it doesn't matter, you know, uh, enjoying science fiction movies, liking Chinese food, you know, uh, uh, wanting to sleep late, whatever. If you took that the fraction of the population, the general population that, that is like that, and you compare it to the population of sex workers that's like that, you'd probably find they're pretty close to the same. Um, I think maybe the only exception might be that most sex workers, and not at all even, but most sex workers tend to be a little bit more open about sex and touch and things like that. Um, I find that um, when I know a sex worker who has gone on to a different job, or who is in um, college to go to learn to you know to train for a specific kind of job or whatever, I find a very very large number of them are drawn to the helping professions. So I find a lot of sex workers who are med students, nursing students. Um, they're nurses on sabbatical. They're teachers. They're um, they used to do daycare. They they're. In vet veterinary school, you know what I'm saying? Psychology. So there are people who, um, who have a, a desire to help other people and who also are um, nurses, Is a big overlap, who don't have a shame about the human body. And so I think if, if there's any one characteristic that most of us tend to share, that's probably it. But other than that, we're pretty normal.
1: Where should people plug into if they want to learn more about uh, sex worker liberation?
0: Well, if they want to, um, if they want to follow me, um, I you can you can Google Maggie McNeil, uh, and the last name is spelled uh, M C N E I L L. And if you Google Maggie McNeil, I'm pretty much like the first ten pages of results. Uh, my Twitter will be there, my blog will be there, um, a bunch of nude pictures will be there, all sorts of stuff. Um, but I also I talk to. Um, It's not just that I'm the only source, but it's just that if you start with me, I interact with a lot of other sex workers on Twitter, and so you'll, by following me, you'll discover them, right? You'll discover, oh, look at this other one she retweeted, and look at this one she's talking to, and I'll mention people and link them on my blog and things like that, so it's a good, easy intro uh, to get you into a lot of other groups and individuals that are doing a lot of good work.